0: Grassroots Community Network is now available to podcast. Enjoy all your favorite programming, whether you are making the commute to or from work, enjoying a jog through the mountains, or just hanging around the house. And don't forget that Grassroots offers over 4,000 shows on demand on our webpage, www.grassrootstv.org. Simply use the search tool in the upper right corner to locate your content there are many ways to connect with your community. For podcasts, visit our homepage on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. All direct links, including a direct link to subscribe to our RSS feed, can be found under the search bar on our homepage. And remember, you are Grassroots Community Network. Please consider contributing by visiting our website at www.grassrootstv.org. Or by calling us at 970 925 8000. Thank you.
1: The
2: Thrift Shop of Aspen, making grants to Roaring Fork Valley organizations and providing scholarships to Valley High School students through sales of donated goods. Located in Aspen between the fire station and Beaches Cafe.
3: Welcome to another episode of Law and Politics in Aspen. Usually the show's focus is on local issues, but on a personal note, one of my greatest passions, one of my great loves is foreign policy, and we're just absolutely so lucky to have two distinguished guests here who are coming in on the Institute, but they're willing to take some uh, time from their very busy lives to join us. Dr. Hutchings and Dr. Suri to uh, have a conversation about foreign policy. Thank you both for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. pleasure. So speaking uh, before we got on camera, for both of you, your, arguably your greatest expertise is Europe. So that's where I'd like to begin and that's where I'd like to focus. You're Lithuania. your Estonia. How fearful should you be right now of Russia?
2: I think they have good reason to be fearful. Uh, and I think that's why they're looking so much, the United States and NATO, for reassurance. And I think. Uh, you know, it's up to NATO and the United States to provide reassurance. Um, I don't think this is a new Cold War, but they are the most exposed of all the countries.
1: Right, and I think they should be concerned about all kinds of internal pressure that they're getting, which is to say, not necessarily Russian forces coming over their territory, but cyber attacks, uh, economic sanctions, all sorts of nefarious activities that Putin is using and will use to try to pressure their decision-making.
3: How, in terms of, I mean, after the the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of the Cold War, there was this great euphoria that maybe we'll get, you know, democracy in Russia. There was a little bit of hope with Yeltsin and Clinton. That seems to be a dream that's far away now. Is that, in the future, a realistic prospect to return to, or what's your take on Russia internally?
2: Look, I'd make a distinction between the hopes we had for much of Eastern Europe, countries like Poland, the then Czechoslovakia, Hungary, countries that did have a parliamentary past. We had great hopes that they would build democracy, and they have. I don't think there was such hope in the near term for Russia to turn from where it had been for its entire history, Mm -hmm. except for a a brief interlude in the early 20th century, into a democracy. The hope is that Russia would join the community of states in the first instance and be a, a constructive member of the international community. And second, that it would open up its society domestically, both the economy and the political system. And to some extent that has happened, although not as quickly or as fully as we would have hoped.
1: Yeah, I think we will see a more democratic Russia after Vladimir Putin, but it will not look like the kind of democracy we were hoping or thought we were getting with with uh, Boris Yeltsin. That Russia has taken a number of steps back. Some of that has to do with Putin, some of that has to do with economic and social conditions in Russia. But what we're in now is we're in this, this space Uh, where we have a dictator who's in a sense allowing or not allowing democratic change to occur. So I think we will see more democratic advancement after Putin.
3: So last summer we had PBS's uh, frontline special Putin's Way. There was a scholar I think out of uh, some university in Ohio. Putin's Kleptocracy, I mean, coming out of the United States, whether it's academics or government itself or sometimes a combination of the two, is a real kind of anti-Russian message. Within the context of Syria and nuclear weapons, do you think this is smart?
1: Well, but I would just step in on that if I could. I don't think it's an anti-Russia message. So, for instance, Karen Dewisha, who wrote the book Putin's Kleptocracy, she's a scholar of Russia, a lover of Russia. And I think after the end of the Cold War, we saw many Americans uh, who actually wanted to help Russia, who fell in love with Russia, uh, with the literature, with the people. Um, The frustration is with the government, and we should draw that distinction. I think the frustration is with what Putin has done, how he's hijacked Mm -hmm. what looked like it was a series of democratic developments, and the frustration with uh, his willingness to not only uh, retard the development of democracy, but to steal from his own society. What, What Karen has pointed out is he's taken about $20 billion.
3: But to play devil's advocate, I know in the beginning of the war in Afghanistan he gave us, Basing writes that because of the Chechen rebels he fully understands the threat of Islamic terror. I mean, a lot of times we do have common interests, yet that sure. seems to get lost in the dialogue in Washington.
2: Yeah, I think we still have common interests. We have some common interests with respect to Syria and ISIS. Not total convergence of interests, but some. So, I, And I think what we need to do is build on the areas where we do have common interests, certainly with Iran's nuclear program. There's a great commonality of interests. Each side has its own agenda, but you build on those. And I would just go back a little bit my view is that the Russia we see today is pretty much the Russia we're going to see for a while. It'll be, it will be better after Putin goes, whenever that is, but it's still going to be a sort of a half democratic, half authoritarian, somewhat corrupt state for the near term. And we just need to le- learn to live and deal with that state. So for the
3: Wilson idealists out there who want to see freedom and liberty spread throughout all the world and all the different continents, To what extent is Russia retarding that progress in Central Asia? We always talk about Eastern Europe. We're probably going to return. But in Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, those countries that are kind of in between Russia and China, to what extent is Russia propping up Dictators making it impossible for those people to have good government. Well, what it, dip-
1: it would have to go country by country. Okay. But yeah. certainly in places like Chechnya and elsewhere, there's no doubt, uh, and Georgia as well, that the Russian government is putting pressure on democratic forces not to express themselves, and that the Russian government is doing what it can to aid mm-hmm. authoritarian figures. Putin's view is that authoritarians who are pro Russian are the best governments to have. So he's incentivizing that behavior. Now, some of that was already in process internally in these societies. Many of these societies came out of communist rule, without developed civil society, without political institutions, and meet the new boss, same as the old boss. These are old communist figures. We had this happen in Yugoslavia we, as well, right? The same figures. Right. <laughs> Who you know, like have just taken Biden. over. Who have taken yeah. over. So you can't blame mm-hmm. Russia entirely for that, but what you can say is Russia is incentivizing the same bad behavior.
3: I know Whatever we alienate Russia or Putin's upset with us. He tries to go to China and bring them closer to their orbit. To what extent is this a repeat of the Cold War? How close is that relationship or is there still a major
2: schism between Russia and China? Oh, I think there's major schisms. Uh, But I think the Chinese are pretty well aware of what's happening. The future for China is not alliance with Russia, although there may be good reasons from the Chinese perspective, to have a tactical alliance with Russia on certain issues. But in the long term, that is not the future of the global economy or the the international system. That's to be found elsewhere. And I think the Chinese are plenty smart enough to know that.
1: The Chinese want a G2. They want a G2 of the US and China. Russia is not uh, an economy on the same scale. It's not a political power on the same scale. It's a military power, that's all. It is a country that in some ways is a third world country with first world weapons. And the Chinese recognize that. Their fundamental interest is economic, and that involves the U.S. much more than Russia.
3: Okay. Um, but with respect to China, you really think that the future is going to be, we're going to be closer to China than Russia? I know some, I don't international... We world. are
1: closer to China. Yeah. Than no, to I know, in terms, of, in
3: terms of cooperation, in terms of leaders. We are much
1: closer. But to. you Absolutely. think
3: that's even going to be 10, 20, 30 years?
2: I think that's a long-term perspective, yes. I mean, we have far deeper economic interests with China than we, ever, than we will in that time horizon with Correct. Russia.
3: I know history is history for a good reason, but we were speaking earlier about the presidency of John F. Kennedy. I've read stuff in the last six months of his administration he gave the famous speech at American University trying to put an olive branch out to the Russians then at the time, the Soviets. Sure. He actually saw Russia as a more willing partner than China. He thought China was a greater cause of communist aggression around the world.
1: Well, this is why one of the one of the topics we're talking about uh, is the opening to China. It's something right. we talk about in our book. And uh, the opening to China shifts that completely. You're right. In the 1960s, China's in the midst of a cultural revolution. They look like not only a, a distant country, right. they look like a greater threat than Russia does. We know how to deal with the Russians. At that point, we don't with the Chinese, but by the 1970s, this shifts considerably. So, Michael Pillsbury,
3: book the Hundred Year Marathon. They still carry this anger from the 19th century about the Opium Wars. They hate the West. They're much different than us, than even Russia. You think that's bunk, and that they're all no,
2: gonna... absolutely not. Right. I, that's what I, mean, I no. And I, I think in the book that we just did, Jeremy contributed an excellent chapter on the opening to China, and President Nixon in making this overture yes. was smart enough to understand right. that this is deep humiliation in China's recent memory, this is day before yesterday for Uh, China, Western exploitation under the so-called open door policy and other uh, infringements were things that are very current in Chinese thinking. They're present today and I think any good, solid, uh, sustainable approach to China bears that in mind.
1: And so they want to be treated as an equal. They don't want to isolate the West. They don't want to isolate themselves from the West. They want to be treated as an equal, and they're hypersensitive <coughs> to the common condescension they get from us. So it's true, this history matters, but this history doesn't predetermine conflict. It predetermines a hypersensitivity toward equal treatment.
3: I read a book, I think Martin Jack, not sure if I'm getting the name right, but when China dominates the world or some title like that... and that still China has a very nationalist bent, that they think that the kingdom of heaven exists under China, and the further away you are from China, the worse you are, that they kind of have, almost the way the Soviets did an impulse to kind of dominate the world, whether it's the Silk Trouting. you don't see it. No,
2: I'm not a, neither one of us are Sinologists, but my understanding of Chinese, the Chinese image of of themselves is not a global domination, it's the Middle Kingdom as a cultural center out of which radiates neighboring states. It's not the same kind of aggressive intent that we saw under this, the Soviet Union. Now, that kind of more benign intent can still m- produce troubles for China's mm. neighbors because they may not want to be in right. the sort of right. hegemonic sphere
3: of right. China. Vietnam and
1: the Philippines. Right. Exactly. They, they don't have a messianic ideology in the way that the Soviet Union had communism and the ways that sometimes we do in our most Wilsonian moments, right? They don't have that messianic ideology. They see themselves as the civilizational dominant Power in Asia, and they see Asia as the center of the world. So we do have U.S.-China conflict, and will over who will be more powerful in Asia. I think that's going to be serious. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the Chinese are going to challenge the United States in Latin America in the way that the Soviets challenged. Or Africa, because
3: that's the story that comes. You take Sudan as a. Um, they a have small
1: economic th- interests. I don't think they want to politically own Africa. They're, they're not looking to create political alliances. They're looking to do business. There. So you're saying you don't think they approach a certain country in Africa, you don't think they care whether it's run by a
3: dictator or a Democrat. They just want those natural resources. That's, I think that's, that's right. right. And, it's and
2: sometimes they may find it easier to do economic business with a dictator. Right. But that doesn't mean they actually prefer the dictatorship. Okay. So
3: before we were talking about Nixon opening up China, in the 1970s. He obviously won the argument. Some people take that history as granted. But if you look at the other side, Barry Goldwater, for example, a famous senator from Arizona said, you know, I hope Richard Nixon goes to China and stays there. He thought it was absolutely disgusting that we're rewarding a communist country that still forces women to get abortions and doesn't allow its government officials to believe in God, et cetera, over Taiwan, which is, a, you know, pretty much a free and democratic country. Do you think that argument is totally lost or do you think it could reappear in the 21st century?
2: Boy, that's, it'd be a hard one to make now after all the benefits we get from our relations with China. But you look China, at this again,
3: presidential China, campaign, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, a lot of people are saying those are not benefits.
2: Yeah, well, you, yeah, <laughs> I, Donald Trump is certainly making the case that <laughs> and so is Bernie. we're not striking a strong deal You're with sure. China. But that's a different kind of argument. That's, a, yeah. that's yeah. an argument on the economic merits right. of our relationship uh, with China. But to say that we, to say what Goldwater said, which is essentially we disapprove of China, therefore we'll yeah. have no relations with it. That's, that belongs to a bygone era. But Kennedy
3: said that in the 60s, that he refused, yeah. said he went so far as to say is that if the UN ever um, favors the People's Republic of China over Taiwan, that the United States can't be part of
1: the UN. I mean, Kennedy and Goldwater... But that's a, different, that's a different time. I mean, right now... Why is that exam- time over, I guess? Well, so, I, uh, one, there are many ways we could look at this. The, I think let's look at just trade and economic interest, what money does, Right. right? All of our major partners in Asia trade with China more than with us. I
3: Austra- know Australia so, is the number one So,
1: So how could we do this? So what would we, I mean, how would we tell the Japanese, the Australians, the Indonesians, the Vietnamese, and others to have no relations with China? No, we I can't mean, go back to that. Word. Right. And so it's a, it, it's a fictitious fictitious or fictitious view of our imagination, right? I mean, what we can do, what we are doing is trying to manage that relationship. And really what the debate is among presidential candidates is how to think about our trade laws and trade policies with regard to China. And there's a lot of room for debate over how open, over whether the Chinese are reciprocating appropriately, over currency manipulation. But none of this is really about cutting ourselves off from China.
2: I I put it this way, too. Having economic fights with China on economic grounds is, is, is good. I mean, it's good. and That's why we have right. WTO right. to help referee these things. The linkage between China's human rights record and trade is one that has a very long history. Right, right. And both the George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration and others tried to link these two right. without much success because they wound up, but if you the, want, giving up on human rights because they couldn't pay the penalty in trade. We're now in a different place in our relations with China because we have much more going on in the bilateral relationship than just human rights and trade.
3: In an an interview two months before President Kennedy was assassinated, He famously said in an NBC News interview, he felt that the loss of China in the 20th century was arguably the greatest tragedy the entire 20th century. And for our audience that doesn't know, you had the monarchy rule in China until the early 20th century. Then there was a man by the name of Sun Yat-sen, really the only free and democratic leader to ever run the country. and then Somewhat democratic. Somewhat, yeah, not ideal and too much authority located in one place, but somewhat democratic, the best term. Then Chiang Kai-shek is his protege, takes over. Then you have Japan come in. On um, a side note, but then in, from 1945 to 1949, you have the Chinese communists led by Mao fight, Chiang Kai shek, the communists win, and China since 1949 is communist. Kennedy said that was the greatest tragedy of the 20th century. Do you think he was right? No. Why not?
2: And it, it presumes that we lost
3: China, that well, China was ours to lose. But, but uh, like if you look at the Truman administration, right, he made all the commitments that were supposed to be made to Turkey, to Greece, to France to make sure they didn't go communist. So a lot of people. Let me put it
2: this way no amount of blood and treasure. Could have turned China over to the nationalists.
3: Well, I agree because their no politics was bad. They, they didn't strongly enough condemn Japan. They thought
2: the so. C- you know, there, there's a lot of CIA analysis that's now been declassified. It was interesting that for once—not for once, but for <laughs> one of the few times—CIA <laughs> yeah. saw this coming way before yeah. the political side. Yeah. That the nationalists had lost. There was nothing we could do about that. Right. No amount of. No, Mao was a more
3: effective leader for sure. There's. Yeah.
2: So I mean, I, th- I think the whole. So sort the of conspiracy theory of history doesn't get us very far.
1: Um, it's also, I mean, it's, Kennedy did say that. But that was said at the moment to try to justify what was a more hardline American policy toward China. He was also saying that because the US was under increasing pressure from our allies, including the British and the French, to recognize China. And so he was trying to push back against that. So that was a political statement. That was not even an analytical statement he would have stood by. The greatest tragedy of the 20th century was probably the Holocaust. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Um, so, first of all, China sh- doesn't, doesn't go up at that level, and secondly, what the communists did was horrible in China, but it wasn't a lot worse than what the nationalists were doing there. Right? So it's not as if the communists hijacked a well-functioning democratic society. They didn't. So going even earlier than Kennedy, um,
3: before World War II and 37, when Japan invades China, do you wish that FDR did more for China? I know he was so bogged down with Hitler and potentially invading England. Well, in 1937,
1: he couldn't do much because he was legally bound by neutrality legislation. Right. He, he
3: circumvented that a little bit with
1: England. but but And he put a lot of pressure on Japan. In fact, many scholars now argue that, in fact, FDR backed Japan into a corner and in a sense provoked the Japanese to war and FDR expected the Japanese to attack in December 41 but he expected them to attack in the Philippines not in Hawaii um, but FDR did put a lot of pressure on the Japanese but there wasn't much more the United States could do we didn't have the force capability and the president was legally bound by congressional legislation to remain neutral. Uh, And 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 we did remain neutral in Spain. I mean, that was... we
2: didn't have domestic support for that kind of foreign policy activism. But see,
3: it's it's interesting. I mean, I studied the third Taiwan Strait crisis in the mid-90s, and in my experience, my judgment, Bill Clinton basically wanted to do whatever the People's Republic of China wanted. But it was the Congress that tried to negate Bill Clinton's will and say, listen, we support free democratic, to a certain extent, Christian countries over the atheist communists. And they had the leader of Taiwan come at the, the request of the Congress. And if you go back even to the 1850s, when there was this Christian leader that was trying to wipe down uh, the monarchy at the time of the 1850s, both the U.S. public and the British public, uh, in this book called The Autumnly Kingdom mm-hmm. in the Heaven, I don't mm-hmm. know if you read it. That. Yeah, that, that both the U.S. and Britain, there was this kind of Judeo-Christian want to like spread the cross, so to speak, in China. So I wouldn't Say yeah, but there's not-
1: the, the missionary. Uh, uh, the Taiping Rebellion is one right. example of there's The missionary influence has led Americans and, and other missionaries from Europe to look to China, not Taiwan, because that's where the souls are that can be converted. Right. So there's no way. But I
2: meant,
3: but, the, but to the broader point of looking the other way at the human rights abuses of China and just say we have an economic relationship. There are a lot of people in the United States and Europe that fight back on that and want changes and... Yeah, of course. Sure. Of
1: course. And human I'm rights I'm not is- sure
2: anybody... In, there's no serious political figure I know that yeah. says we don't care about human rights in China. Right. It's a question of what do we do about it? How much can we alter the behavior of another country um, to suit our preferences? And at what price? Um, and arguably, you get more mileage by having a, a robust relationship with this country to try to encourage right. them over time to relax their human rights, and, and this is actually beginning to play out, I right,
1: think. Right, and the, the American policy has always been to balance both, right? So we have much more economic interest with China, and we work more closely with the Chinese on many issues, but we do actually protect the Taiwanese. Taiwan is independent, remains independent because of our navy, that's yep. right there to protect them, and that's not going to change anytime soon.
2: And I think one thing to worry about a little bit is, you know, the support for Taiwan has been steady through. Republican and Democratic administrations, in Obama as much as George W. Perhaps Bush. So. The problem is, technologically, because China is advancing so right. rapidly, their military capacity is advancing, and every time their military capacity increases across the Taiwan Straits, we, because of our defense treaty with Taiwan, need to prepare ourselves right. for the defense of Taiwan, even though we hope this will never happen, and the two sides get closer to a an inadvertent conflict.
3: So I watched a special with... Uh several CIA agents on, and they were likening our relationship with Taiwan to our relationship with Israel in the Middle East, that Israel is this free and democratic country, and they're surrounded by this large undemocratic enemy, and we have to do whatever it takes to protect Israel, and the same logic applies to Taiwan. They're surrounded by this large undemocratic enemy, and we have to stick with our free and democratic friends. Do you think that parallel holds up?
2: Yeah, there's a little bit to it, but we have very robust relations with lots of Israel's Right, and Saudi Arabia,
1: and right. And we
2: have lots of robust relations with Taiwan's right. neighbors, yeah. including above all mainland China. Right. So
1: yeah. I, I think it's a terrible analogy. I don't think I don't think Taiwan looks like Israel in any way. Uh, first of all, Taiwan is in, in a in a region that has many other democracies that are close friends. In fact, closer friends of ours. Is right? it true? Japan, one, South Korea. In this
3: piece, they said that Taiwan was by far the strongest democracy out of South Korea and Japan. Accurate or not? Accurate? I don't think that's don't, accurate at all. I don't know. I'm asking.
1: I, I think uh, I think Japan uh, is one of the strongest democracies in the world. They have their own issues. They have problems of corruption. They have. But economic you can't criticize the
3: king, right? I mean, someone. Was saying the emperor.
1: Still, the yeah. emperor. Yeah. Oh, okay, you can't criticize the emperor. But if <laughs> That's you, not very if, democratic. If, well, but if you look at how, the, uh, how leaders are chosen, right. if you look at how the society is run, and if you look at the ways in which resources are invested in the education and the social welfare of citizens, it's a very democratic society. There's a great deal of participation and a great deal of consent between citizen and government. Same thing in South Korea. Uh, there are many democratic regimes in Asia. It's very different from the Middle East. The other point is that China is not... Um, Iraq or Afghanistan or Saudi Arabia. This is a modernizing society with many problems, with many non-democratic elements, but it's also a reforming society as well. Both things are happening at the Did same you talk time.
3: you talked before. What, what are a couple of concrete things that you can point the skeptics out there saying, listen, China's moving in the direction of democracy, not just economic liberalization, but political rights, the right to so,
1: free speech. Yeah, free so there's breath. far more social mobility in China than there's been before. There's still a lot of people stuck in rural environments, but there's far more social mobility. With social,
3: you mean the, the ability to climb up the economic ladder. And
1: and to move from rural to urban, to decide where you want to live. How about right? women
3: having autonomy over their own bodies and not being forced to have an abortion?
1: Well, so they've, they've now uh, eliminated they've eliminated the the one-child policy, right? So they, Yeah, so they've moved back on that policy. You still can't have
3: the third kid. <laughs>
1: Well, right, no. So this is not you, right. you. This is not to say they have reached right. anything that we would call democracy right. yet. Um, local uh, administrators, local rulers have a great deal of control over their area. The Communist Party in the center does not control okay. everything. Like it's federalism, not, like, almost. Y-
2: y- in our citizens to comment against their own government's policies, yeah. while still limited, yeah. is much greater than it was a decade ago. But,
1: and look what's happening now. Not only are Chinese leaving to study abroad and work abroad, <clears> they're taking their money out. Right. Uh, the, the classic definition of a dictatorial regime is it's a regime that doesn't let you take your money out. They are letting wealthy Chinese take their money out and put it into the but
3: U.S. I remember when you had the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. People were literally arrested for trying to bring Bibles in. And
2: yeah, but brought- let me just back up a little bit. Yeah. I think if we conducted a foreign policy that would do business only with countries we totally approve of, we'd be down to three or four I know, partners. I agree that- with that. Yeah. I mean, I- and yeah. those partners wouldn't do business with us. Because of the death penalty.
1: That's exactly right. No, I
2: understand We live in a complicated world. I don't think anybody, certainly not the two of us, is making an apology for China's human rights record. What we are saying is this is a big, important country with which we have a lot going on and which can be a force for constructive relations in their part of the world and globally. And And and
1: back to your initial point, if we think about U.S. relations with Russia and U.S. relations with China today, the future for U.S.-China relations looks a lot brighter. In the future for U.S.-Russia
3: relations, yeah, yeah. yeah I've
2: heard that too. And I think also the the, the the fear that China is on an inexorable march yeah. to take over the world is really an impoverished view of the whole totality of Chinese society. They've done wonderful things for their economy, which is already and predictably slowing down because to make to make the full leap into the modern global economy requires some structural changes internally that the regime is likely to be very resistant, reluctant to make, maybe incapable of making.
3: So you mentioned Japan earlier in her first year as Ambassador Caroline Kennedy for the second term of Obama. The issue of, of the Nanking massacre of the Japanese, raping Chinese women that's still a sensitive issue in China there seems to be a lot of distrust flowing both sides is that accurate like how does we talk so far from the perspective of US China relations can you weigh in on Japan China yeah. South Korea so, China? so the
1: Chinese not only have a historical grievance against the United States and Britain and other Western powers they have a very strong historical grievance against Japan and the Japanese have not been good on this right so even democratic societies sometimes don't act in appropriate ways uh, Japan continues to diminish the enormity of that tragedy. Uh, when I've been in Japan, many times you'll hear Japanese government officials and academics deny that it even was on the scale that we know it was. So, so there is an, an, an offense there. The reason the Japanese aren't so open about this is the Japanese as a society are still a society that sees themselves as superior to the Chinese and the Koreans and others. They're a very insular society. That's how they preserve their culture. So you have this, this conflict there. And in fact, the relations between Japan and China are far worse than the relations between the U.S. and China
2: and you can throw into the mix the relations between Japan and South Korea yeah. are just as poisonous. Because yes, I think this gets They the, were
3: a colony of Japan until yeah. the 1940s. And so. they've so got lots of
2: unresolved issues and, and I think at this point the way to think about the United States role is that to c- be a counterbalance to these right. national rivalries in East Asia is in our interest, China's interest, Japan's interest and South Korea's interest. This is where we actually play a
1: critical role. This is one role. thing they all agree on. The one right. thing they really agree on is that they like the United States in the region as a buffer between no, the three of them.
3: I, what's breakdown China and Vietnam's relationship?
2: Well, I'm not sure I'm competent that okay. I actually. I just
3: know that, that. Do you have an astronomy? Well, so, I mean, mean, I know
2: Vietnam is, is nervous about you know, China.
3: But Chinese they do share the, the communist socialist link, so I know it's.
1: So, so well, but I think the, the bigger issue is that the Vietnamese are big trading partners with the Chinese, uh, but the Vietnamese are also uh, very wary of the large Chinese mass yeah. north of them, and they have historic problems with China. So, more than any ideological affinity, you have to put that aside. The real issue is that traditionally the Vietnamese have been the small neighbor to the big neighbor China, and they have felt the wrath, the power of China, like Mexico to the U.S. So it was
3: more Russia backing up the the North Vietnamese and the Vietnam. More than China?
1: The, the Russians were the bigger uh, supporter, especially in the early 1960s. And then right after
3: the Vietnam War it was China tried to invade Vietnam yeah. and we came to their rescue. Well, we didn't really get in involved. The rescue, we but didn't
1: get involved, really. And I know then
3: that's when you had the split between China and Russia because Russia right. came So to... the
1: Vietnamese right now want to continue trading with China. They want China to remain an open market for them. But they want U.S. protection, U.S. defense, and they want to increase their trade with the U.S. as a hedge against China. So is it
3: fair to say that the relations are chillier between the Philippines and China than Vietnam and China?
1: No, I think they're pretty bad between Vietnam and China, too, because of the the disputes over the South China Sea.
3: And is this just going to be, like, endless turmoil? That's a
1: historical dispute they've had. I don't see it going away. And, again, it gives the United States the role of playing arbiter and mediator between them, and that's not a bad thing to do. How about China-Pakistan? I know China helped Pakistan gain a nuclear weapon. Sometimes
3: they seem to be allies, but then, again, you have Islamic terror bleed into China, so there's that distrust. How do you weigh in on China-Pakistan? Uh, well, Because China th- and Pakistan were uh, allied against India. Yeah,
1: th- right. That's the bigger issue, I think, is that for both China and for Pakistan, their relationship is a way of trying to contain Indian power. And I think they'll, they'll see a marriage of convenience there, but Pakistan does not offer the kind of market the Chinese need. It doesn't offer political stability. There's not a long-term alliance So
3: China-India is also pretty frigid, you would say.
1: Yeah. That's, well, that's more to worry about, sure. Yeah.
3: In those Central Asian countries, is China going to try to fight to get power over them versus Russia? Oh. Is that an issue? know Is they're,
1: they're going to slowly exert influence as they are in the Russian Far East. they are parts of Russia now that have more Chinese in them than Russians along that border. They're more Chinese, they're more dynamic, they have more money. Uh, but the Chinese don't have a desire to territorially rule, rule Central Asia. That's not going to... How about the Silk Route
3: where everyone has to use their currency? That's what people talk about.
1: Yeah, but they have to freely float their currency first, which they mm-hmm. haven't done, so they, I, I think that's I mean, all I think overstated. The, of
2: all the things the United States might have to worry about, China and Central Asia is not on
3: the. Short it'd be level. Russia. What's the? Oh, we got thirty seconds, but it'd be Russia. What's the? What are the top issues? Islamic well, terror.
2: I, one that you haven't mentioned is the European Union. Yeah. If Europe begins to go in a reverse direction, yeah. we've lost People one of the great historic achievements of the second half of the twentieth century, and there's not a whole lot we can do about it. But except to do what we can to avert
3: that. And last, I hate it because so superficial because we just have a little bit of time. Germany, you feel like they're moving in the right direction or countries like Greece have legitimate grievances that they're trying to become an economic, hegemonic
1: power? In well, the I think it's part. not an either-or situation, right? Germany is a remarkably productive and successful economy and they still are an anchor for Europe, but they do have to recognize that their success has been built on the backs of the South yeah. European economies.
2: It's another argument for the U- U.S. role. Yep. Henry Kissinger famously said, Germany is too small for the world, too big for Europe. We need to be there to balance Germany. Well, on that note,
3: Dr. Hutchings, Dr. Sir, we could speak for hours on this. You guys are beyond smart, beyond brilliant. I'm sure your students uh, really appreciate having you at UT. And thank you so much. For, I know you guys are really busy, so I really appreciate ah, it. My pleasure. Thank a you. Pleasure. This is another episode of Law and Politics in Aspen. Love the chance that we got to mix it up with international issues. Thank you so much for watching, and so long.
2: The Thrift Shop of Aspen. Making grants to Roaring Fork Valley organizations and providing scholarships to Valley High School students through sales of donated goods. Located in Aspen between the Fire Station and Beaches Cafe.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the Grassroots Community Network. Check out more of your favorite programs, browse our video on demand, and subscribe to our social media channels at www.grassroots.tv.org.